Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Full. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Well, good morning. Live across Melbourne. And Victoria, this is Dirt Radio from the Friends of the Earth Environmental Group. My name is Jeff Waters and I'll be uh, hosting you through the next half hour to discuss some very important things. And what a beautiful morning it is out there. Uh, I, I must say my tram went past the Carlton Gardens this morning and my word, it was looking beautiful. I cannot understand for one moment as a Queenslander who's lived in Victoria now for 16 years, why on earth we brand this city with a photograph of a train station rather than our first Parliament House. It is far more spectacular. It drives me crazy. But anyway, that's my rant for the morning. That's the cost of of me coming in here is that I get to rant a little bit and, and to pick the music too, which you'll hear later. We're uh, listening, wherever we're listening from today, from the uh, stolen lands of Australia's Indigenous people. I'd like to acknowledge the uh, Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land that we're on at the moment and uh, all of the elders on the timeline there, back in the old times and emerging and now. Joined in the studio today by a doyen of the environmental movement in Victoria, a man who has, uh, we were just discussing, uh, been doing it for more than 30 years, looking after the environment for you, uh, and his name's Anthony Amos. He's joining me in the studio this morning. Good morning, Anthony. Uh, morning. And uh, I hope you're having a good morning, that it was lovely out there for you too. Have a good trip in. Yeah, I nearly had. I didn't, nearly didn't come in. I was sitting having a coffee in the in the morning sunlight. And you thought, this is much better yeah. than sitting in a dreary old studio with that big mouth Jeff Vi- Waters bloke. Uh, vitamin D hit, yeah. Oh, nice. And a coffee hit as well. And That's a coffee, good. yeah. So yeah. you're ready to, ro- I'm, ready, um, ready to yep. roll. I'm charging at the moment, yep. <laughs> so... um. Before we begin, how long have you been doing this and, and in what sort of roles have you been working in? Uh, well, I've been active since about 1988. So that was, what's that? It's 400,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So we were in a little group called Rainforest Action Group. So that's where I got my start in all this, uh, I was going to say madness, but it's um, it's been an interesting experience and then i was involved with fire in the early 90s as well in and out and doing various things over the years and uh, got involved in the strasleckies in the strasleckie ranges about two hours southeast of melbourne in the mid 90s and yeah it's just hooked me in well thank you for providing that beautiful segue to our first question oh my computer just made a noise um there's about to be a new study released regarding the Strezlecki koala. What can you tell us about that? Give us a bit of a heads up. 
So the Streslecki koala, I think I've spoken about this in the past. Um, all koalas in Vic there's two populations of koalas in Victoria and South Australia. There's the relic population, which consists of about two, two and a half thousand animals, which is confined to the Streslecki Ranges, South Gippsland region. And then there's the other population, which is the translocated populations, which essentially come from the islands of um, Phillip Island and French Island, and where they were introduced in the 1870s, 1880s. So the relic population contains the gene um, which will make the population as a whole more resilient to changes that come in, you know, like climate change and disease and all the rest of it. So... Um, it's a bit sad that it's called a relic population. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a complex little history, the, the koala situation in Victoria. Yes. Um, which I don't really want to go into. But well, this, we'll be here for several hours. Yeah, so this little population, we've been really interested in it for the last, well, 30 years, but uh, primarily the last 10 years. And so we've been busy sort of mapping its habitat uh, and working with some of the top experts in the country. So... Um, the new report was produced by a group called BioLink, Dr. Steve Phillips, and um, yeah, he's assessed uh, the uh, reserve that we've in the process of getting handed back down there called the Bratanglang Forest Reserve, which is about it will be eventually be eight thousand hectares of of reserve at Forest Park in the Streslecki Ranges. So he uh, and his team came down and did um, some surveys in that forest. And, um, yeah, and he's uh, come up with some interesting results. Which um, are? Can well, you tell us? Well, the, um, if you're thinking koalas, you've really got to think about preferred koala feed trees. So although you might have a forest, unless you've got those preferred koala feed trees, the koalas really won't be there. So the species you look for in the Streslek is a mountain grey gum, blue gum, Streslecki gum. So if those three species aren't in the forest, you're very unlikely to have any koalas. And what he found was that in that reserve area, the amount of koala feed tree um, trees is um, a lot less than what had been uh, predicted um, by sort of government experts in Victoria. So he's sort of more or less... Uh, published result, well, published soon. That basically the estimates by the state government are about four four hundred percent wrong in terms of the wet forests um, um, in the Streslecki ranges. The other interesting thing is that through some work by a researcher, uh, Faye Wedrowitz, she published in twenty seventeen. She's analysed the DNA from the koala scats and. Um, there's seven sort of families that can come under the Streslecki genome. And what they've done through their mapping is they've found that Morwell National Park, a little park just south of Churchill, 2,000 hectares, um, what Steve has found uh, and confirmed with Faye's results is that it looks like the entire population of the Streslekis has come out of that tiny little forest uh, where the national park is. And over the last 80, 90 years, they've gradually, the koalas have gradually moved out slowly from this tiny little um, area in Moyle National Park. So in terms of, you know, global significance, that area around the Moyle National Park is, uh, well, it's one of the most important koala habitats 
remaining on the planet. Um, you, know, you know, a portion of it was burned a couple of years ago for bushfires, so it's really precariously um, located um, due to climate change and all the rest of it. So that's essentially the key findings from the report is the really significance of Moorwell National Park and the fact that these wet forests aren't, um, don't have the numbers that the state government has estimated. You're listening to 3CR, Radical Radio. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Dirt Radio, produced by Friends of the Earth here on 3CR Radical Radio. I'm Jeff Waters and I'm speaking to an environmental expert uh, who works for Friends of the Earth by the name of Anthony Amos, and he's talking to us about the fate of the Streslecki koalas at the moment. Uh, Anthony, you've told us about the significance of this patch of forest, but what does all this mean for the koala? Well, the, well it means that there's um, there's not much habitat. I mean, it's all, it all revolves around habitat, the Streslekis is the most depleted bioregion in Victoria. Absolutely got hammered from about the 1880s onwards. Um, and so the remnant vegetation remaining down there is, is extremely fragmented um, and limited. And, you know, any, any bush down there which contains these koala feed trees is, is of vital um, significance. Part of the problem is in Victoria, um, we can't get any conservation protection for the Strasleki koala because the existing legislation doesn't include uh, genetic diversity within a species. So and that's the state government? The state government, the Flora, Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act is, is, you know, like greater gliders and all that have, have protection under the um, Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, but we can't get that protection for the Strasleki. So because of that, we've had to go to the federal government through the Federal Environment Act, the EPBC Act, because that act does include genetic diversity within a species. And we put in a uh, nomination last year, but were knocked back because um, they wanted more information, of course. Uh, state government has done zero uh, in any shape or form to protect the Streslecki koala. They haven't, I mean, they've admitted that. They've done absolutely nothing. So it's less left to a you know some environmentalists such as myself, Susie Zent, another uh, campaigner from Friends of Gippsland Bush. Um, it's up to the community to do the work that the state government should be should be doing, and you know we've got very limited resources and and the scale and the scope of what we need to do. It's absolutely enormous. So well, as you know, of course, this program has very many hundreds of thousands of regular listeners across the state and uh, is extremely 
popular program. And so we could use our force of numbers, listeners, to do something about this. But where should they go? Where do we go to find information about how we can help? Well, the Friends of the Earth website. So type in SCAT. We've got a small collective at Friends of the Earth. That's S-K-A-T. S-K-A-T. And and that'll give you all the details that that you need to know. Um, we, We take volunteers out every... Well, I'm going to start doing it on a monthly basis now. So we take people out. I'm taking a group out on Sunday just to get them, um, you know, more up to speed with how to do the surveys, what to look for. Um, and, yeah, we're going into a patch of bush that hasn't been surveyed before. So, well, That's counting koalas. How can we move the state government into doing something? Well, the state to government... To protect these these genetically diverse koalas. Well, part of the problem is that the state government says there's an overabundance of koalas in Victoria. But they're not taking into account the genetic differences no, of the Strezleckis. That's right. So we, we've got a real problem on our what hands. What can we do? Well, our, what we're doing is we're trying to appeal to the federal government because under mm. their legislation, they can act. So the next thing they want us to do is to look at the um, how far the range of the Strezlecki genome actually goes. That was one of their first arguments back last year. So we might have to survey some of the um, areas a little bit north of the Strezleckis now to determine. And then with them, we've got to find the scats and then we've got to send them to a relevant expert who can actually go into the lab and actually grab the DNA samples off the scats to confirm whether they're Strezlecki or not. It's not an easy task what we're trying to do here. It's um <laughs> it's we are it's all um, right. It's it's very, very difficult. But you know, anyone who wants to help or support, you know, um That's fantastic. We've got an interesting uh, you know, interesting little collective happening at the moment where they're um honing into these issues and the complexity of it. Sounds like we should send a few drop bears into the Premier's office, if you ask me. Let's go to a track.
That's not just lovely, calming music. I don't know what is. Um, You're listening to Dirt Radio on 3CR Radical Radio. Uh, We all come from Friends of the Earth, which you, of course, should join uh, and volunteer for and help protect the planet. And I'm speaking, my name's Jeff Waters, and I'm speaking to uh, Anthony Amos. And Anthony, who is also working for Friends of the Earth, like me, has also been looking into drinking water quality in the Northern Territory, and uh, the findings are quite frightening. What, what, did, what did this report find, Anthony? Well, from koalas to water, yeah, well, there you go. This is another little side gig I've been interested in for years, um, particularly contaminants in drinking water. Anyway, so we looked at the data from uh, the Northern Territory uh, for the last 15 years, they've had information which is publicly available. Um, yeah, so went through the the data and um, we put out a report, oh, it was about two weeks ago. Um, so the report says about 6,000 people in the Northern Territory have been drinking chronic levels of toxins in their water for at least 15, possibly 20 years. Oh, my word. So those, to- those toxins would largely be heavy metals. So um, one little community called, uh, I think it's called Goodabidjan or Bulla in the northwest of the territory, they've been um, exposed to levels of barium, which is um, a metal for about over three or four times higher than the drinking water guidelines for the last 15 to 20 years. And of course, heavy metals have an impact on one's intellectual development. Yeah, well, barium's, it's also, if you have it in high numbers, it's, it's a nerve toxin as well. So um, that was the uh, probably the worst performing of all the uh, little communities out there. But we, yeah, we had about, there's about 10 communities with about 6,000 people which were drinking, um, you know, from range from barium. Also, there was communities with uranium drinking above the guideline level. So a little, uh, probably the most... A famous little community is Laramba, which is near um, Alice Springs. Uh, they've been drinking uranium in their drinking water for some time. They've just been, uh, they've just had a new treatment plant built this year, which is really good. But that took the community a long time to actually lobby and put pressure on the Northern Territory government to actually fund a new water treatment plant. These communities are largely I- indigenous, of course. Uh, other places have had high le- levels of fluoride. Um, um, another one is lead, which comes up quite frequently. Um, but when we looked at the numbers, or when I looked at the numbers, um, the, uh, the the big one that um, not many people discuss is one called sodium, which you know, like a, the salts. So, um, so um, the drinking water guidelines have a guideline which 
anyone with cardiovascular problems or uh, people you know at risk of stroke or on sodium reduced diets um, aren't supposed to have drinking water above a certain amount. And what we found in the Northern Territory, about 50,000 Northern Territorians are drinking um, drinking water sodium uh, in their drinking water above, you know, the 20 uh, milligrams a litre, uh, which which is the guideline level for for um, people with cardiovascular problems. You look at the statistics, the cardiovascular problems. Um, the highest rates in Australia, in the Northern Territory, in Indigenous communities. So, um, you know, the sodium in the drinking water would be contributing to those health outcomes. But um, when you look at water authorities, very few of them sort of tackle this issue of sodium. I don't know. And last week there was a story on 7.30 about little New South Wales community of Walgett. They've had sodium in their drinking water at high levels as well. Well, the Northern Territory situation is is just as dire. So, yeah, 50,000 people would be drinking that, um, and including Alice Springs. Um, and some of the communities, probably 300-kilometre radius around Alice Springs in that drier southern area, um, you know, have got these excessively high sodium uh, levels as well. Part of the problem is these little communities can't get the lobbying. I mean, you, you're looking at places, 100, 200 people. Uh, how do they organise and, and lobby for, for, you know, for better drinking water um, without, you know, support from media and, out, and outsiders? Um, and that's what Laramba did. So they pushed and pushed big articles in the papers, The Guardian, ABC, and the Northern Territory Government finally yielded. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll come back uh, in a minute and talk about the implications. You're listening to 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And this is Dirt Radio. I'm Jeff Waters, and I'm speaking to Friends of the Earth's uh, Anthony Amos, who and the uh, water quality situation in the Northern Territory. Now, you say that, of course, uh, these small communities have very, very um, limited ability to lobby uh, governments for change. So, electorally, they're in a terrible position, uh, and um, they're still drinking this water, what can possibly be done to improve the situation? Well, Albanese government just announced $140 million sort of package to uh, um, support water infrastructure. $140 million doesn't go very far, though. Well, no, the Water Association of Australia said we don't need $140 million, we need $2.2 billion. Yeah, So that that announcement... Um, will go about 7% of the way. Um, and the other issue, which is interesting, say if you're in a Northern Territory government position, which communities would you target first for help and which ones would continue to miss out? Um, it's a sort of intriguing sort of question because if you've got 50 communities that have got issues, how, how the hell do you work out which ones 
get the get the new treatment plants, which ones continue to miss out. So Northern Territory government announced in well, 20- surely you'd start with the worst. Well, well, they might. The government might argue. Well, what we want to do is, is protect as much, as many people as, as possible. As many people, and, as they, and they to... might go to a larger community because yes. they. Can, so th- this is sort of because there are votes in the larger community. That's right. That's exactly right. So yeah, it's an intriguing question. So what we wanted to do was I look after a thing called the Australian Drinking Water Map. So what what we wanted to do is look at water across the country. So the Northern Territory was first cab off the rank. And next, we want to look at, because um, I've got all this data, so maybe South Australia or maybe Victoria, just looking at um, which communities are under the most impact for, for from drinking water issues. So the issue in South Australia is going to, get, going to be different again. Um, there's a lot of communities there that have impacted by, uh, they call chlorine disinfection byproducts, which are carcinogenic compounds created through the chlorination of oh water. Oh, my word. So there's a lot of... so. That wasn't an issue in Northern Territory, but it certainly is in areas of South Australia. So it's it's a mighty, mighty big issue. And it, Sounds it, like we could like make a very large dent in this uh, in this gap in health services or in the in the life expectancy of of Indigenous people simply by making the water the same quality as we drink in the city. Well, it's always intrigued me that there's not more people, more activists interested in water. I mean, um, I think that part of the problem is we're we're mainly based in urban environments where the where everyone just is, you know, they they basically get this good good quality water, particularly in Melbourne. So it's not really a factor in people in urban environments. But once you get out into the country, it's a completely different ball game. So there's a disconnect going on with urban urban people and a lot of these people in the rural and remote areas well, where, a, where water's the number one issue in some of these communities. That's a very long story, isn't it? That's yeah. been happening for uh, ever since we settled the place, and uh, Europeans. Uh, just very, very briefly, uh, is there anything that the audience can do to help? Um, oh, well, main thing is just, just get more interested in, in the topic. Uh, they can contact me if they're interested finding out more stuff. We haven't really got a collective at FAO. It's just mainly me looking at this issue at the moment. But if people want to get in and help um, or if they want to know more about what's in their water, I, I, might, I might be able to help them. That's terrific. You've been listening. Thank you very much to Anthony Amos. Thanks for coming in and joining us, Anthony.